This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi. So today on the Loopcast, uh, we're going to have a conversation on um, exploit sales and development. So when we say exploits, we mean zero days, old days, and and more. Um, the reason that we we wanted to have this conversation is is if you follow InfoSec Twitter, this has been <laughs> quite a contentious issue. People, um, there's been conversations that go on for days about zero days, you know, both from an ethical and legal perspective. And so today uh, we have uh, Jim DeNero with us uh, at Cypher Law. Um, he's an InfoSec and intellectual property attorney, and he'll bring some um, facts and some, you know, what, what are some, some of the common you know issues and and ideas that go into zero day and old day um sales and development so i want to start off right off the bat you know give us an overview of the laws that cover sort of the research and the sale of exploits and even the disclosure of of exploits i'd be happy to uh first uh Thanks again for having me on the show. Really appreciate the opportunity to discuss the issues and hopefully provide some additional clarity into what is a fast-moving and uh, murky, if not actually opaque, uh, area of, of law and regulation. Uh, just as an initial matter, I should also point out that you know, since we're talking really in hypotheticals and about the law in, in general, that uh, no, no one listening to the show uh, should consider this to be uh, legal advice uh, about their specific situation or uh, consider that any particular attorney-client relationship um, is a result of uh, listening to the podcast. But to, to, to get started, I think that one of the things we need to be clear about is the distinction between research activities and the sale and export of, of exploits. Uh, they are really governed by entirely different uh, legal regimes and the considerations that individuals need to uh, take account for when, involved, when doing research are, are really quite different uh, than, than what happens when uh, the result of that research perhaps uh, the identification uh, of, uh, of a, of a zero-day and, and, and an exploit that can be sold, uh, that's covered by a totally different set of laws. Uh, and really, the, the researcher needs to be mindful, depending on whether the researcher is just looking to uh, find and identify bugs and, and report them, uh, or whether the researcher is, is looking to actually commoditize them and, and commercialize them and, and by sale and export. Uh, there different. Right, so we do need to keep that in mind. Interesting. So I want to maybe start off with, you know, how does the law define what is an exploit? Because it, are, we, are we talking about sort of a set of behaviors? Are we talking about code? Or for, for this conversation, are we talking about outcomes in the sense of 
you know, damage and maybe even potential potential damage? I mean, when yeah, law, that's oh, a great uh, question. That's a really great question, and it under that question, the fact that we have to ask that question, <laughs> underscores one of the most significant challenges that are faced. Uh, some of the most significant challenges that are faced by anyone working in the space, those trying to create the laws and regulations that they will eventually apply to it, as well as the researchers and, and those enforcing the uh, the law in, in government and in, in the criminal context, perhaps. And that is, what is cyber? It comes all the way back to that. Uh, it's a term that everybody, pretty much everybody hates, uh, but we're kind of forced to use because there doesn't seem to be any better term. Uh, maybe InfoSec, uh, but then we've got exploits and zero days. I mean, we kind of have a pretty good distinction between what's a vulnerability and what's an exploit. Uh, but beyond that, it's really hard to define what it is that we're talking about. And it gets even more confusing because most of the software that's out there is capable of dual use. And that's sort of in quotes, and that's a term of art. And that means that the tool is capable of being used for you know, some offensive purpose, perhaps to disrupt the network or extract information uh, to which the operator is not actually authorized to have. Uh, or it could be used for uh, you know, innocent purpose, relatively innocent purposes to you know, find out what's happening on your own network. Uh, so it's, the, the challenges of defining these things are, are, are dramatic. And that will probably, we'll see that come up again and again. And that, that is probably the, the one reason why it's going to be hard to create any kind of uh, sensible uh, legal framework around this and why there's tremendous risk, really, uh, to the security researcher community uh, because it's quite possible that we'll end up with laws that are overbroad. And there's a lot of concern about that. Uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which we'll discuss, certainly has been criticized as being overbroad by its uh, definitions of, of what the prohibited criminal activities are. And with respect to export control, uh, the same issues um, arise again. So in terms of what is actually being controlled uh, and regulated, so on the research side, the regulation is about activity primarily. It's about what the researcher is doing on the system or on the network, uh, and whether or not the researcher is allowed to do that. Uh, it's really activity-based, uh, essentially. So, and with respect to export control and sales, it's really more about what the thing is and what, it's, what someone would be able to use it for, what its capabilities are. Uh, so turning to the... Uh, criminal side, uh, certainly in the, in the U.S., the, the biggest concern that most researchers have is respect to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, which is a provision in, in U.S. criminal code that makes it illegal for somebody to intentionally access another computer without authorization and thereby obtain information from it. Uh, so it's, you know, the only real limitation on this uh, is that it has to be intentional, uh, which means that a mistake or inadvertent, careless kind of act uh, wouldn't fall within it. Uh, but 
you know, we're not really that worried about careless security researchers. Most, <laughs> most activities are fairly well directed, and uh, most of the time people have a pretty good idea whether or not they're on their own network or on someone else's network at the time, uh, and whether or not they've actually been given permission to, to be on that site. So it's the intentionality provision isn't really, while it's the most significant limitation, it's, it's not one that really applies uh, very much as uh, a defense within the, the context of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So that is um, that is the, is the primary concern that, that most researchers uh, would have. There's a criminal side to it, and we've seen it uh, applied uh, in some really famous cases against uh, Andrew Ornheimer, Weave, uh, Aaron Swartz, and, and others. Interesting. So I'm sort of curious. I mean, it seems like the the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is always defining, you know, you and another. So I have to be on somebody else's network, or that person has to be on my network, etc. What happens in the case of security research that's done on products that the researcher buys? So, for instance. Um, uh, the most uh, sort of popular case that I can think of is somebody like Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek. They purchased a Ford Fiesta and then did their research on that automobile. Or um, there's another researcher on Twitter who purchases AV programs and basically reverses and looks for exploits and sort of does security research on AV. So my, my question is, is what happens when the security researcher buys that product and then reverses it and does that research to, you know, vulnerability and exploit research. I mean, does the CFAA cover that or is it more of a, a end user agreement issue or how do we incorporate that style of research into sort of our understanding? Right. So with that's, a, that's a really good thorny issue. Uh, and this, it highlights some of the ambiguity in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, well, sort of as, as, a, as a shorthand, when, when I talk about it, I usually refer to a, a network and whether or not you're on some other computer that's, you know, that you're accessing over some network where you don't have control of the, the endpoint that you're accessing. But by its own language, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is not so limited. It doesn't actually say over a network or that it's a remote computer or anything like that. It just refers to accessing what's called in, in the statute a, quote, protected computer, unquote. And a protected computer is a defined term. It doesn't mean protected by any kind of cybersecurity measure, unfortunately, although that might have been a helpful interpretation of it. Uh, protected computer really just means that it's protected by the statute, which uh, is, is defined as meaning it's used in interstate commerce, which is basically anything. Uh, so the, the statute could be read so broadly as to cover um, that sort of activity. Uh, so this is a big problem for people trying to figure out whether or not they're actually breaking the law by doing a certain thing because by many, by reading the, the statute on its face, it, it appears to cover that. It appears to cover a lot of fairly innocent things such as noticing that your neighbor's Wi-Fi has a default password and connecting to it and saying, look, I got on the Internet. <laughs> You're really pushing it there technically by, by the statute. Whether or not you obtain information from that, it's hard to say. You could debate it. I don't know that anyone has actually been prosecuted for accessing their neighbor's Wi-Fi like that. 
But you're certainly starting to head down that road when you say, look, I'm on my nearest Wi-Fi. Oh, and I can see his machine, too. I'm not just on the net. I mean, he's actually sharing his PC. And uh, now I can see that, too, because he didn't set the password. And like, uh, that's, um, now you're down, that's, that's, that's looking much more like it. So people are, everyone's very concerned about this in the, in the community because technically you're committing this crime quite easily. Uh, and the answer, unfortunately, is that, yeah, you probably are technically violating it, but does anybody really care? And the answer is maybe not. So when you talk to the Department of Justice about it uh, and you look at what the actual criminal prosecutions are, you find that the people and the actions that are being prosecuted stand out always for some reason or another. It's usually not somebody who accidentally saw the, the water bill of his neighbor by changing the HTTP query string and then reporting that. Although those people often get some hot water, they don't usually end up in criminal prosecution by the state. Uh, when you look at who the, who's, who's, who's being prosecuted, there's usually some kind of aggravating factor. Oftentimes there's financial elements to it. Is there an extortion attempt? Uh, or credit card information is being is being is being uh, taken. Uh, in in cases where it's not financial, uh, there are factors. For example, Andrew Orenheimer, uh, this you know he he found a public facing API and could and could basically guess uh, uh, the inputs and get email addresses out and. But he didn't do it just five times and go to AT&T, which might have upset them anyway. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, he obtained about 110,000 email addresses doing that and wanted to use them in some uh, interesting ways. Uh, and that was going too far, as, you know, according to the norms that they were operating on. AT&T didn't like that. The Department of Justice didn't like that. Uh, and even in the case of Aaron Schwartz, uh, while... His goals may have been very laudatory, uh, certainly freeing the, uh, the journals for, for public consumption. Uh, while we can debate you know, the moral value of that, and a lot of people would agree that's a, that's a high cause uh, for it, it advances knowledge and information, uh, he also had to get into MIT's uh, networking closet and attach equipment onto their system. Uh, and that sort of then you're mixing in physical trespass. Uh, in, into the mix and, and actually changing their, their, their physical network there to, to make that happen. Uh, and that certainly increases the ire. Uh, and it kind of almost forces the hand of some of these companies to pursue and support the action, to support the government action, because they're, uh, they, they, they feel that they have been violated in a way that that's beyond just being notified of a, of a bug. So unfortunately, there's no, it doesn't provide any real comfort because what we're saying here is that the answer relies on tutorial discretion. And you, we're basically in a position now where we just have to trust that the government is not going to come after you uh, with a criminal action based on the security research that you've done. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a challenge because the act is extremely broad and it, it does leave itself open to discretion and one has to wonder if I'm politically unpopular and I find something. Uh, perhaps I find some vulnerability on a government system. 
instead of just in the commercial system. Maybe uh, just on the wrong side of the politics here. Uh, that might be why you end up being prosecuted, uh, even though other people may have done much more interesting uh, security research that, that's much more invasive, but you're the one being singled out, and the law doesn't provide you any any reason why you shouldn't be, because it is that broad. So I want to maybe step away from the criminal side of things and into the civil side of things. Um, first of all, I mean, what does a, a civil legal action look like? What, is it, what, is, you know, what does it look like when one company sues an individual or takes action against an individual? What is, I mean, so walk us through yeah. that. I mean, I, I think we're all sort of familiar with what a criminal prosecution looks like, but the civil action is sort of a little more murky for us. That's right. And the, the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act apply, uh, it includes a civil cause of action as well as a criminal cause of action. And the civil cause, there, there are actually, when you look at it, quite a few civil uh, civil actions alleging with, with, a, with a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act claim in them. There are literally hundreds of them out there that, that you can go and, and look at. And the interesting takeaway that you find from even, even a quick survey of them is that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act claims are almost always an adjunct to some other issue that's going on. Uh, for example, somebody is fired from their job or leaves voluntarily, and then the next day they're back on the network using their password and they're downloading the customer files. <laughs> uh, that's uh, a kind of pretty similar common thing that, that you could imagine happening in a lot of contexts, and that's, um, that could technically be a violation of it of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and that's um, often the way these, these things arise. Um, there aren't a whole lot of straight-ahead, uh, yeah, I was hacked by this guy type of uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act cases out there where it stands alone by itself. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, I, you know, the lawsuits are expensive to bring, and you'd have to have a pretty good... Uh, reason for doing it. And if there was somebody who, who some, if a white hat found a vulnerability in your system and disclosed it uh, to you, and then you, you didn't like the way perhaps that research had been done, well, you'd have, well, you could bring a computer for an abuse act action. It's going to cost you money to bring that. And time and effort is a distraction. Uh, so you'd have to be really, really motivated to do it. And most of the time, that motivation isn't there without some kind of attenuating issue like this guy took my, took my credit card information while he was doing it or caused some other big problem, uh, like took a customer list to a competitor. Uh, so really the, the, the more – so as a result, we're seeing, well, if you're, if you're kind of a white hat person doing the right thing, you're kind of unlikely, although we can't guarantee, uh, to be facing criminal prosecution for, for your research, although it's a risk. Uh, you could also face a civil action uh, for for your for your activities, although again, not terribly likely that that is going to happen to you. the The biggest risk is is really the threat of the litigation uh, that 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 you get, and that's the, and that's the chilling effect that that we're worried about because there are a lot of cases where somebody has found some bug and tried to report it, 
and then the messenger gets, it's a typical case of shooting the messenger, and that person is either threatened with criminal action or civil action, uh, and so, sometimes those, those cases are dropped, sometimes they uh, might proceed, or, or maybe it's just uh, the cloud hanging over uh, of, of an investigation uh, into your activities, even if, even if uh, it doesn't actually end up in, in, in a lawsuit. So as a result, people, because there are no answers to these questions, about what would potentially be a criminal act and whether they'd be prosecuted civilly or criminally. People say, like, you know, I think I just don't want to do this. And I'd rather it's just not worth it to me because maybe this is my hobby <laughs> and it's just not that important to me that I go out there and find this vulnerability in the local water company's site because I really don't want to get fired from my job. I might have a security clearance. I just don't need the hassle. I mean, then... How does the the sort of legal, I mean, how does the the legal aspect shape things like responsible disclosure? Or disclosure. I mean, you've already touched on it, but it it almost seems like if I was a white hat, I would be very discouraged. I mean, even if if somebody, you know, even if somebody brings a lawsuit, then drops it, it's you know, it almost seems like the cost of going through that of right. you know, being served and being pulled in front of a you know, either conference or a, or a judge. I mean, what does that do? What does this do to sort of being responsible and disclosing bugs and sort of vulnerabilities? Right. And that's the, the Department of Justice is cognizant of that fact, and they would like to find a way to try to uh, fix this. As, as well, because I think there's a general recognition among everybody uh, at this point that there's a lot of good security research going on, and that should be encouraged. And, and furthermore, if we just take a realistic, I mean, that's from this strictly a policy point of view, high level. But if we if we drill down a little bit more, uh, we can recognize that you know it's a it's a public good. And we, we want to we want to encourage it, and it's going to happen anyway. Now, people are going to find stuff, whether you criminalize it or not. We might as well get the benefit of the activities if, they're, if the activities are going to happen. Instead of just having uh, random people poking around on your, on your network and, and wondering what they're finding, what they're doing, wouldn't it be great if you, if you did that? They're going to do it anyway. Get the information about what they find. Uh, so it's... Um, it's a problem for responsible disclosure because it, it, it impairs people's willingness to do that. So one of the things, in an effort to try to improve the situation, uh, I've been working with uh, Bug Crowd on something called the Open Source Responsible Disclosure Framework. And the idea is that, uh, for lack of a better word, we'll, we'll call it the vendor, uh, the vendor would publish on their site basically an invitation to just random to the, to the internet community to go ahead and pen test essentially within a certain scope. And there would be a promise that if the researcher stays inside the scope uh, and follows certain basic rules like disclose to us first and give us 30 days or 60 days or whatever it happens to be in order to remedy it, and they might also say, we'll give you some credit. We'll put up a page, and you can get your pseudonym or handle whatever you want. But we'll give credit out, uh, and maybe even financial awards, not necessarily, but at least credit uh, to those who report stuff to us that we think is legitimate. Uh, 
So, the, the, that would probably go a long way to making people feel more comfortable. But it, again, it doesn't solve all the problems because there's still the issue of, well, what if I'm a little bit out of scope? Uh, maybe they're not going to like that. Uh, or maybe I can't really trust them. How do I know? Well, I guess over time, you would, you would build that up. You would see that, well, this vendor has been soliciting bugs, and here's this list of all these things got reported, and they're really nasty, and no one's gotten sued or, or, or in trouble, as far as I can tell. So this is like a company that's got a good reputation for soliciting, and I can feel like I can tell this company things with, uh, without fear of that. So it's something that would have to – it's going to take some time, I think, to build up that level of trust between the vendor or probably more likely some kind of stats, right? Uh, between the between the vendor and, and and the research community, but that that trust can be built up, and those I think those vendors that are willing to take the time and effort to build that kind of trust in the community will see the benefit of people being willing to disclose, and companies that that don't have the uh, don't have a published policy or, or or don't seem like they can really be trusted to. Uh, to accept bugs and, and give credit and, and, and not uh, harass uh, the, the, the researching community, uh, then you know, they won't get the benefit of it. And they'll ultimately be less secure uh, probably for it. Uh, and then maybe, you know, I think in the end, uh, the, the big thing hanging over all this is, you know, will, will it really matter in the end? Hopefully, cons- hopefully the consumers will say, yeah, I'd rather do business with a company that is willing to uh, accept bug reports and and make improvements and be open about it rather than a company that's a black box and, and doesn't want to hear about what's wrong with their systems. So I want to maybe switch questions a little. Uh, up till now, we've sort of engaged with the idea of how the individual navigates the law. I'm sort of curious now about corporations. And what I mean is, in the last, I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a historian, but I'm going to just say maybe five to six years, we've seen sort of the creation and rise of companies that specialize in exploit sales. And we'll get into specifics, uh, you know, further down in this line of questions. But, you know, how does a corporation, you know, or a company navigate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? For instance, I mean, if you have a company that specializes in exploit sales and development, how do they navigate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? I mean, is it a matter of just, you know, being a company, you know, how does this work? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it, it's, you know, ultimately the answer is you're, you're not going to hide behind the fact that it's a company. Uh, it, and there is, there is going to be responsibility for, uh, for that. And the individuals in the company should consider that, uh, they may be civilly or criminally liable uh, for for their actions. So there, you know, it's sort of a joke uh, that you know there's the uh, vice president in charge of going to jail. Maybe <laughs> uh, someone's going to be the bag holder, right? Maybe it's that vice president, uh, this fall guy. So yeah, it's the, there are a lot of companies. It's a, it certainly applies to individuals who are out there finding things or have something to be concerned about. But there are a lot of companies in the space that that face these issues as well. A lot of them are, are doing uh, work on behalf of the defense industry or the government and, and significant corporations. 
and they're out there doing things that could potentially uh, be considered to be covered by the Computer Fraud Abuse Act, for example. And that's um, that's a concern, uh, and that's a concern for them, for their businesses as well, and and for the for the individuals in the company, for their personal, for whatever liability that they might have for for authorizing these acts and 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 perhaps even doing them themselves. Uh, so. I think they mostly take uh, some heart in the fact that, you know, as a white hat group that's supporting uh, U.S. interests, you know, if they're doing something that's maybe potentially problematic, they're unlikely to be on the receiving end of of a criminal action. If you're sitting, if you're looking at, so if you're out there on some hot point. Looking at what's what sort of uh, excels on there. Yeah, I mean technically, it's, you would be violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Effectively, is the is the government going to come after you for that? Probably not. <laughs> it's a risk. It's just a, it's a it's a unfortunately it's an industry just fraught with a risk risk right now. So in terms of liability, I mean, is there a difference between a company that specializes in zero days versus old days? Because I think in, in terms of researching the show, you know, we there's companies like Exodus Intelligence that, you know, they basically sell um, for the, you know, zero days and sort of they do exploit development. But then on the other hand, you have a company like Rapid7 that has Metasploit, which is, you know, the joke is that this is where exploits go to die or this is, you know, old days where you have exploits right. that have been sort of known for, for a very long time. So in terms of that... Uh, liability, I mean, does that shift? I mean, is it, you know, does Exodus Intelligence and Rapid7 sort of, you know, accept the same degree and same amount of liability despite making, you know, what are wholly different products? Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. There's no, the law itself doesn't make any distinction uh, in either export control or in, in criminal hacking law uh, with respect to the quote-unquote hotness, if you will, of, of the exploit. Uh, so, it, again, it's really going to turn on what the software does and who it's being given to and um, what the intent of the the author and uh, the, the recipients are, and, and what maybe what kind of connections uh, they might have with each other. So the, the if you're if you're in the business of uh, selling tools that that could potentially be used for a malicious purpose, then you want to make sure that you've got the adequate disclaimers. Uh, that you know it's like sort of an in app or something like that. It's like a basic kind of thing. Uh, maybe that was. You know, maybe you, that was your idea and it was your software, let's say. Uh, certainly, you could use it on your own system. You could point it at other people's systems. Uh, it potentially, could potentially be used in connection with some kind of uh, criminal enterprise. You would want to say that in your, you would want to have a disclaimer to people you were selling it to or giving it to that this, this software is not, it's provided for legal use on your own network. And by using this, you promise that you're only going to use it on systems that you've been given access to or permission to do this on, and, and so on and so forth. And that's, that should be, you know, for dual-use stuff here, and uh, that, that's usually good enough. Uh, 
Uh, as long as you, you know, if someone calls you up and says, "Look, I'm using this to hack my school to change my grades," you, know, you better hang up uh, the phone and not and not uh, ask them. Well, you know, make sure you got the right subnet in there. Uh, that's, so that's um, it's the, the dual use issue is, is something that we're also seeing now in the connection with exports, and that's that which is an issue that's you know of, of some concern uh, to the corporations as well. Uh, because you know, there are a number of companies now. Uh, uh, the most obvious one that's in the news lately, of course, is Vupin, uh, that are in the business of uh, distributing, selling this sort of software across international borders. And that's um, that's it. That's an investment issue too. So a lot of the a lot of the stuff uh, could be used, obviously, as a significant offensive application for it. And there's there's substantial movements now afoot uh, to regulate this, the sale of, of zero days uh, exploits and the like across international uh, borders. And I think it, it's not, um, it's the fact that regulation is coming, I don't think is, it's not something we can blame on the, in, uh, on the industry. It's, it's not because the industry has failed. I don't think it's because the industry has failed to regulate itself. Uh, by thinking about who they're selling to and, and what they're being used for. And, and maybe these tools are being used against dissidents uh, to silence opposition. And, and perhaps the software is being used for, for goals that, uh, certainly in this country, we might think are, are morally reprehensible. Uh, I think the issue is that, as we all recognize, that the, you know, it's maybe only a, a slight overstatement to say that the next war will be a cyber war. And there are a greater and greater cyber component to every conflict. And there's talk now of the cyber caliphate that Fox News was uh, was uh, talking about recently as well. And it's it's going to get bigger and bigger. And you just had uh, Kripia uh, talking about this as well, and or jihad, what kind of crypto or jihadist using. Uh, so it's a real issue. Uh, the, the types of tools that can, if you have a tool that can be used to compromise an endpoint, uh, that's a really big deal now. And then not so before. And whether or not the industry was capable of regulating itself, uh, these, these tools are going to become so important. And they already are. And the, the importance is just going to go astronomically higher. Uh, in, in, the, in the future, uh, these tools are so important to national security for every single nation that the governments have no choice but to control them. Uh, whether or not uh, people could promise to say, look, I'm only going to sell this to my own government. I'm in France. I'm only selling it to the French government or in the U.S. I'm only going to sell it to the U.S. government. Uh, you could say that all you want, but the government's gonna, always going to say, look, this is just too important to leave it up to you and your promises. And your consideration about, well, is this, is this piece of software okay to sell or is it not? Or is this, is this, bit of, is this really too nasty? Is it so nasty that I can only sell to the U.S. government or is it just kind of like a little bit nasty and I can sell it to some other country maybe? And the government's going to say, look, we're just going to take over this space and we're going to tell you how it's going to be done. And they will clamp down on it. The movement's already afoot and it's, it's going to happen. Uh, it's inevitable now. Interesting. So, I mean, on on that point, I'm sort of curious, you know, what does regulation look like? I mean, it seems like, you know, um, there's been a movement, at least from my perspective on Twitter, there's, you know, the movement to sort of regulate zero days is very much, you know, 
use the phrase merchants of death. There's very much a sort of exaggeration of what a researcher does or what that export is capable of. But, you know, and from a legal perspective, I mean, is it feasible to even regulate zero days beyond sort of, you know, using the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? I mean, you know, what does even a regulation regime look like? I mean, do you base it on export laws? Do you base it on, um, what do you base it on? And I can't even come up with a framework. <laughs> yeah, the two bases that are out there now are criminal use of it. So every nation can enact its own version of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And uh, Europe has is, is got its own version that's, that's in its directive that, that should be implemented by every uh, by all the states soon enough. And uh, in whatever variant that, that happens, uh, we'll see. But it's the, the use of it uh, to, you know, so to hack your neighbor, to hack your bank or whatever within your own state is, is something that will be covered by uh, criminal criminal statute. And, and the export control will be used to, to control it moving, moving between states. But the big issue is always going to be how do you define these tools? And right now, the export regime considers these tools to be dual use. And therefore, they, they, they can be regulated. But the problem is in the, in the definition of what, these, of what the regulated item is. And we, had a, we could see how much trouble we had in, in, in the United States trying to, trying to define what uh, unauthorized access is in the criminal context and trying to de define what intrusion software is. Uh, in, in the context of uh, the Wassenaar arrangement, uh, which uh, will be presumably implemented uh, by most states, uh, it, uh, well, it's already been implemented, but um, there's, there's a new provision about uh, in relating to uh, intrusion software uh, that will be implemented presumably by the United States and in some form in many other countries as well. And trying to define it is, is very very tricky, uh, so that it can exclude legitimate, uh, quote unquote, legitimate uh, software and and uh, excluding software that that could be used um, in a in a more adversarial context. What is? I'm sort of curious. I mean, what does a change look like? How does? I mean, how does Infosec as an industry get together and sort of lobby? Because this is what I was also struggling with when sort of coming up with questions for this conversation was, you know, as a, as an IT person, it was e easy for me to lay out technical facts and issues stemming from technical facts. And then the difficulty of this conversation was explaining that to a regular person to, for example, in my example would be the, my co-producer. And, you know, from there it, it was sort of interesting because how do you explain this to a lawmaker or how do you, sort of change the law or change regulations and explain this to the lawmaker, to a lawmaker, to a regulatory agency that might not have as much technical background. So, I mean, it, yeah. is there a possibility of change or do you sort of, you know, as a company or an individual hope that your friendships with DOJ and your friendships with, you know, the a regulatory agency goes far enough to where you can avoid prosecution or have prosecution? prosecution and sort of that sort of thing be dropped. I mean, you know, is, is there ever an opportunity for an actual sort of 
concentrated lot what you would, what would be considered a lobbying effort there is opportunity for that and there are some well-known companies in the space that are lobbying change on the hill and they've got the ear of uh, some, some some good people and there's hope that there can be change uh, to the with respect to the criminal act uh, the criminal the computer abuse act certainly um, that, um, that that are positive and, and help eliminate this cloud that, that overhangs the, the research community. But I, personally, I'm not very optimistic about this at all because the, the fear of the hack is great and growing and mushrooming again very, very quickly. So now we've got an, a, a Home Depot breach that may be bigger than the previous breach and there are all these credit cards out there. There's the email hack with all the email addresses out there. And then there's um, concern that uh, jihadists are using encryption and how are we going to you know, stop that. Uh, so, yeah, I think, the, I think trying to relax the anything that's considered to be relaxing uh, criminal penalties on, on computer research or computer trespass are, are really going to be facing an uphill battle in this climate. It's very hard for, I think, someone to come out and say, yeah, we need to, to make sure that people can access uh, other people's systems more easily without worrying about getting in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but that said, there are people who are interested in, in fixing the situation and, and uh, hopefully meaningful change can happen. But even in all these contexts, uh, it's, it's a definitional problem. And I think really if what we need to do is find a way to describe the types of activities that we think should be um, given some kind of safe harbor. It's tricky, even again, because the technology changes so quickly uh, that it's almost impossible for any kind of legal regime to keep up with it. What would you do? Would you have a, a big dictionary list of every single type of uh, activity that would be okay to do on some third-party system that you weren't invited onto? And what happens when some other tool comes up that doesn't look just like those? Where does that fit in? Uh, it, it's, it's really murky. So the answer is then, well, let's just leave it open and leave it really vague. And that's kind of what we have now, and that, that turns out to be over-inclusive. Uh, but if you had a laundry list of, ex of, of safe harbor activities, that would be too narrow. Uh, and, and it wouldn't keep up next week. It wouldn't be good enough anymore. It's um, this is a challenge. This is a challenge that we all face, and uh, it's it's if it's, uh, we had more minds on it, I think that'd probably be a good thing. So I think we've basically you've answered all my questions, and um, as with a sort of tradition here, you know, we always like to give the guests the last word or to sort of leave us with something to think about before we sign off for the day. Now, I think we covered it all. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay.